Hello, and welcome to this podcast installment of Disciples. Disciples is the leading faith formation program for young adults in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. St. Louis Young Adults, in collaboration with the Paul VI Institute, is pleased to bring you these short, intellectually stimulating courses. Disciples courses, taught by an expert, offer a deeper look into topics that will help you understand and practice your faith more fully. We hope you enjoy this edition of the Disciples Podcast. Thank you for helping us build a home for Catholic young adults in St. Louis. Six weeks of Dante is uh, is like um, trying to see New York uh, City uh, while blitzing through it on an airplane or over it. You can only see so much. What we've got is um, these past six weeks is a is a good overview. Uh, but the moment you do a deep dive into anywhere in Dante, uh, you can see there's a great deal of allegory. There's a great deal of metaphor. Uh, there's a great deal of faith and reason. Natural law intersects with and is supported by divine law, that kind of stuff. Uh, you start to see Dante as uh, a narrativization of St. Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica as much as you see um, him as a narrativization of Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. Uh, you start to see uh, the promise uh, that uh, La Vita Nuova initially made that's fulfilled in the comedy. And that promise was Dante said he wouldn't write anything more of Beatrice until he could write of her what no man had written of any woman, which is ultimately um, demonstrating Beatrice as a pathway to the vision of God. Um, and Beatrice points that out in the Purgatorio in Canto 30. She says, look, you thought all of this of me, and then you saw my body decomposing. That should have really uh, tipped you off to the fact that there is no um, comfort or permanency in material things. Your mind should have flown directly to God at that point, um, instead of wallowing in um, pagan philosophy outside of uh, the um, way in which uh, divine revelation and divine love can inform it. Virgil makes the same point when he's in uh, the Purgatorio. He says, you know, I can only take you so far. You're going to have to ask some of these questions of Beatrice. And that's in particular in their conversation concerning the relationship between love and free will. So uh, today's presentation is the vision of God ex expressed in the Paradiso. And so I'm going to lead off with a quote from St. Irenaeus, or Irenaeus, who wrote, Gloria inim Dei vivens homo, vita autem homis visio Dei. Or um, for the Latin, um, classical Latins out there, we ones homo, vita autem homis visio Dei. Uh, classical Latin, you pronounce the V's as W's. And uh, when I was in high school, we had a second Latin teacher show up uh, because of an overwhelming desire on the part of uh, freshmen and sophomores to take Latin. And uh, she was a Germanist. And so she pronounced all her V's as hard V's. And we pronounced, those of us who had been Latin long before she showed up, all of our V's as W's. And so you could see the two groups of students who were the V's and the was, uh, a competition for one another over who was right. Uh, the important thing is the uh, translation in English is right. So the glory of God is living man. And living man, or man is living, who sees the vision of God, or when he sees the vision of God. 
when he sees God. Now, sometimes this is translated as the glory of God is man fully alive. Man fully alive is man when he sees God. So the sense is still there. But living man, to be truly living, means that you're continuing to grow spiritually. It means that you're in communion and relationship with God and man. Uh, 1 John, First uh, John uh, 4.20, anyone who says he loves God but hates his neighbor is a liar because we can only love the God whom we cannot see if we first love man whom we can see. The two greatest commandments relate to us by Christ uh, and uh, synthesized in Luke 10.27. And I like to use Luke 10, 27, even though they're not Christ's words in that uh, uh, paraphrase, simply because it's in the same verse. It's very concise. Love God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. That's the greatest commandment. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second greatest. And Christ says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. If that's the case, if uh, we are to love God with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength, then that's what it means to be a living man. And we've seen what it means to be a dead man. Dead men are in uh, the inferno. They're dead in the sense that um, they're outside of joyful communion with God, of joyful eternal communion with God. They're dead in the sense they're no longer spiritually growing. So there's no way any virtue or any, uh, uh, regardless of how long they're there, any uh, forward motion or growth will ever happen. They're frozen in a very static uh, way in uh, the way that they died, as Campanius points out. What I was while I was living, I am now dead. Uh, and you can see it in uh, Francesca when she talks about her relationship with Paolo. She says, she blames everybody. She has zero accountability for her own actions and even um, condemns her husband for killing her, uh, her, saying he's got a worse place further down. Like there's some kind of justification in that. I once had a prisoner from a federal uh, or from a state prison uh, write me a letter. And they're good about writing letters. And the letter was simply to ask if he could study theology at Holy Apostles. Of course, he couldn't pay me. And uh, when he got out of prison, he'd be able to get a job and slowly start paying us back. Well, that's all good and well. well we're not set up for prison ministry at Holy Apostles. Uh, and that's what I pointed out. But something in his letter interested me more than anything else in the letter. And that's when he wrote, I did kill my wife for adultery. In the way he stated it, what he was doing was justifying why he killed her and why she deserved to die. For that man to grow, he would have to take responsibility for himself and for his own actions and admit that uh, his wife, regardless of what she had done, did not deserve to die. For who can give life? You know, uh, sure, we can take it. Um, but if we can't give it, as Gandalf points out to Frodo, uh, then it's not for us to decide uh, whether a life should be taken. Pope uh, John Paul II, if you remember, when he was here in 1999, convinced the governor to commute uh, one of the, of the inmates' sentences. Uh, the guy was the next one, uh, his name was Mies, the next one on the list to be executed, to commute that to a life sentence. Because 
where there's life, there's hope. And who knows, but that person may one day be able to see through the created thing into the creator behind it. And uh, like Gunitsa in the third sphere of heaven, who saw through uh, the last man she was with, the creation, she saw the creator. And that changed the trajectory of her life. In the same way that the woman at the well saw God in Jesus and uh, brought everyone out to meet him so that uh, prophecies could be fulfilled. So the glory of God is living man. And God created us in his image and likeness. Living man is man when he sees God. So all those people in hell are no longer in joyful communion with God. That is, they cannot see God. And even if they could see God, they would close their eyes. As St. Augustine pointed out, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. These are people who have consciously um, turned their backs on the relationship and refuse to accept the grace that God freely provides. Now, most of us are in a constant state of refusing to accept God's grace. We walk around uh, uh, in an ocean of mercy and grace. Uh, I think I mentioned this before in this class, uh, holding umbrellas because we gotta be me. Too much grace, we feel, will destroy our nature, will destroy who we are. But a metaphysical understanding of our relationship with God demonstrates that uh, grace perfects human nature. It doesn't destroy it. Supernatural grace perfects nature, perfects human nature. So those who are in hell, God has only one thing to say. And you could, uh, this comes out of St. Augustine as well. And uh, C.S. Lewis, too, uh, to uh, bring a more modern author into it. God has only one thing to say, and that is, I love you. That's what God has to say to everybody in hell. I love you. How do we know? Because he keeps them in existence. Their existence is sustained. Because God doesn't destroy anything that he immediately created. And God immediately creates all human souls during the uh, act of conception, during the process of conception. Uh, human parents generate the body. God creates the soul that becomes the form of that body. At least that's uh, what we understand from our studies of St. Uh, John Paul II's Theology of the Body. We understand that from our faith tradition, uh, scripturally, that God creates uh, all souls. The soul as we uh, remember from Cano 25 of the Purgatorio, is a formative principle. The soul forms a body. And so all of these souls that are in heaven, if we're talking, um, man is, philosophically speaking, a composite of uh, material and spiritual, of body and soul. So as a composite being, we are most perfect as a Virgil points out in the sixth canto of the Inferno, uh, we're most perfect when we are whole. After the general resurrection, all those disembodied souls are going to be more perfect than they are now. And I know I'm using a, uh, a comparative with an absolute, more perfect. Uh, but that's what uh, St. Thomas uses as well. To be perfect, 
the body-soul composite has to be present. So all of the souls who've died and are living as disembodied souls are having to grab the dust from the air to form bodies that are visible to Dante until you get to the fourth sphere of heaven, at which point they're no longer trying to form bodies that Dante can see. They're simply orbs of light. For them to be more perfect, they would have to wait until after the general resurrection. And that's what we see here in the celestial rose. In the celestial rose, which is the center point in heaven, it's the point where all of those souls are gathered, no one soul being further away from God than any other soul, because everybody has a full cup of grace. Even Picarda, down in the sphere of the moon, she's not really down in the sphere of the moon, She's simply manifesting herself there for Dante's sake. She's really up here in the celestial rose, as is everybody else. This is their home. This is where they live. And they're constantly having angels move between the center of the rose, where God is, and the uh, petals of the rose, where they are, ministering to their needs, uh, engaging them in spiritual growth, that sort of thing. But they won't be perfect until the general resurrection until they're able to go back and get their bodies and put those bodies back on and walk in the new earth, which will be uh, created for all of us with the many mansions that Christ promised. Christ says, uh, I wouldn't tell you that if it weren't true, uh, because I don't treat you as slaves or as servants. I treat you as friends, as evidenced by the fact that I'm telling you my plans. A master doesn't tell his servants his plans but friends tell one another their plans. So uh, Dante makes it to this point. Beatrice drops him off with um, St. Bernard de Clairvaux, who's a mystic, who had a great devotion to Mary, and who even now is, has his eyes fixed on Mary, in the sense that uh, Mary is uh, a co-redemptrix uh, with Christ, as she points people to her son. And as she points people to her son, our engagement uh, in relationship with Mary makes sense. Because uh, when we say the rosary, pray the memoriam, and uh, so on, we are participating in a relationship with Mary that is already participative in the relationship with Christ. And so uh, all Mary has to do is. Uh, fix her gaze on Dante, and then look up. And when she does that, Dante, whose uh, soul is already willing, is, um, one, uh, prevented from having uh, pride that would result in his fall, like Lucifer fell, uh, but two, is able to be lifted uh, through her eyes, through her gaze, into the mind of God. God here is uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all is one substance. So three persons and one God. And so when Dante enters the mind of God, he's entering the mind of the Holy Trinity. Uh, that one substance that is God, uh, which is a pretty awesome thing for him to be doing. You can see um, at the moment he does that, he's going to have an experience that no other human person has ever had. That experience that he's having is uh, what St. Thomas talks about in the divinization of man. Basically, all these souls here in this mystical rose are in the process of being divinized. 
But for Dante, it happens all at once. He doesn't have to um, continue to grow spiritually, uh, continue to grow as a finite being in an infinite being, because God brings him home uh, in a second. What I like to do is read from a few different translations or ask uh, somebody in this class to read. So the first translation to look at, uh, Arthur John Butler's from the book that I have. Canto 33, page 571. O abounding grace, whereby I took upon me to fix my gaze amid the eternal light, so far that there I consumed my vision. Into its depth I beheld how there enters, bound with love into one volume, that which is distributed through the universe, substance and accident, and their fashion as though fused together in such wise that that which I tell of is one single life. The universal form of this knot, I believe, that I saw, because in saying this, I feel that I rejoice more at large. One moment only is to me greater oblivion than five and twenty centuries to the enterprise which made Neptune marvel at the shadow of Argo. Thus my mind, all in suspense, was gazing fixedly, immovable and intense, and ever with gazing grew in flame. Before that light, one becomes such that to turn from it for other spectacle, it is impossible that one should ever consent. Because the good which of the will's object is all assembled in it, and outside of it, that is defective, which there is perfect. Henceforth, my word shall be shorter, even in regard to that which I call mind, than of a babe who yet steeps his tongue at the breast, not as though more than a single semblance had been in the living light whereon I was gazing, for such is it ever as it was before, but by reason of my sight, which was gaining strength in me as I looked, one soul appeared, as I changed, was winnowed out to me in the profound and bright substance of the light on high, and appeared to me three circles of three colors, in one capacity, and the one seemed reflected by the second as rainbow by rainbow, and the third seemed fire, which from the one and the other is breathed forth in equal measure. Oh, how short is speech, and how indistinct beside my conception. And this beside what I saw is such that to call it little is not enough. O light eternal, that soul in thyself resideth, soul comprehendest thyself, and by thyself understood, and comprehending, lovest, and smilest on thyself. That circle which appeared, so conceived in thee, as a reflected light, when somewhat contemplated by my eyes, within itself, of its own very hue, seemed to me pictured with our image, wherefore my sight was wholly set in it. As is the geometer who applies himself wholly in order to measure the circle, and finds not by thinking that principle whereof he is in want, such was I before this new vision. I would see how the image was fitted to the circle, and how it has placed therein, but my own wings were not for this, only that my mind was smitten through with a flash, wherein its wish came. To my lofty fantasy, here power failed, but already was swaying my desire and my will, as a wheel which is evenly moved, the love which moves the sun and all the stars. So um, we've just experienced uh, an epiphany. 
are really a theophany. Um, Dante has entered into the mind of God and seen it as it is. And then he conveys that as best he can to us. And then he, uh, he wakes up and he, he finds he's at his writing desk. He's finishing up the Paradiso. Let me reread one part of that. And that is, appear to me three circles of three colors in one capacity. What he's doing is he's providing a verbal description of the Holy Trinity. And notice how he does it. The one seemed reflected by the second as rainbow by rainbow, and the third seemed fire, which from the one and the other is breathed forth in equal measure. What's that remind you of? Does anybody have a copy of the Nicene Creed? See, it sounds like generation inspiration. That's it, exactly. Begotten, not made, one in being with the Father, or consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things are made. What we have uh, in Dante's description is an affirmation of the Nicene Creed. That is, the filioque. The Holy Spirit comes forth from the Father and the Son. The uh, Orthodox, if you recall, had broken in recent memory a few centuries before, uh, well, maybe two and a half centuries before this, uh, over that is one of their main points of, uh, of contention. They believe that you could say the Father or the Holy Spirit, um, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit comes through uh, the Father and the Son, that he's not, um, he's not uh, spirating. It, it's, a, it, it's a small difference, the word through. If anybody's read Eve Kangar's I Believe in the Holy Spirit, he gives an excellent uh, description of why the Greek Orthodox held to a different belief system from the Latins. He says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord of Giver Life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. So it's right here, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, the filioque, uh, the and the Son. The uh, Orthodox would say proceeds through or comes through the Father and the Son. So you think it's a small semantic difference, uh, but what Dante has here, which from the one and the other is breathed forth. So from the Father and the Son is breathed forth in equal measure. So it's an affirmation of the Nicene Creed is basically the point. Uh, so as much as um, Dante is uh, being universal, he is also being very Roman in his, uh, in Latin, in his engagement of um, description of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He says, O light eternal, that soul in thyself residest, soul comprehendest thyself, and by thyself understood and comprehending, lovest and smilest on thyself. He's demonstrating a principle that we have come to know is God is relationship. Um, as God is relationship, then God fully is fully contained in himself, through himself, and with himself, and by himself. That circle which appeared so conceived in thee as a reflected light, then somewhat contemplated by my eyes, within itself, of its very hue, seemed to me pictured with our image, wherefore my sight was solely uh, set on it. 
Now, as he's looking at this, he not only sees himself in that image, but he also sees that image of God as changing. And he wonders how the immutable can change. As he gets closer and closer in it, he sees a flash. I would see how the image was fitted to the circle and how it has a place therein. Actually, up at the top of that page, gaining strength in me as I looked, one soul appearance, as I changed, was winnowed out to me in the profound and bright substance of the light on high. So he starts to realize that um, it's not God who's changing. As he gets closer and closer to God and grows more and more in the mind of God, it's he who is changing and becoming more like God. So that is a, a little bit of what blows his mind on this. Uh, I guess a lot of this would blow. If you were suddenly face-to-face -face with God and you were being drawn into the mind of God, uh, you would have a lot of uh, thoughts as well. I'm underplaying that a bit. I would see how the image was fitted to the circle. So this is the old um, uh, scholastic paradox about squaring the circle. My own wings were not for this, only that my mind was smitten through with a flash wherein its wish came. And so he got it, and then his power fails. Let me jump to another translation, and I'll go to Chiardi's. And uh, does anybody have a copy of Chiardi's translation? O light supreme, who doth thyself withdraw so far above man's mortal understanding, lend me again some glimpse of what I saw. Make thou my tongue so eloquent it may, of all thy glory speak a single clue to those who follow me in the world's day. For by returning to, this, to my memory somewhat and somewhat sounding in these verses, thou shalt show man more of thy victory. So dazzling was the splendor of that ray that I must certainly have lost my senses had I but for an instant turned away. And so it was, as I recall, I could the better bear to look until at last my vision made one with the eternal good. O grace abounding that had made me fit to fix my eyes on the eternal light until my vision was consumed in it. I saw within its depths how it conceives all things in a single volume bound by love of which the universe is the scattered leaves. Substance accident in their relation, so fused that all I say could do no more than yield a glimpse of that bright revelation. I think I saw the universal form that binds these things, for as I speak these words, I feel my joy swell and my spirits warm. 25 centuries since Neptune saw the Argo's keel have not moved all mankind, recalling that adventure to such awe as I felt in an instant. My trance being stared fixed and motionless upon that vision, ever more fervent to see in the act of seeing. Experiencing that radiance, the spirit is so indrawn, it is impossible even to think of ever turning from it. For the good which is the will's ultimate object is all subsumed in it, and being removed, all is defective, which in it is perfect. Now in my recollection of the rest, I have less power to speak than any infant, wetting its tongue yet at its mother's breast. And not because the living radiance bore more than one semblance, for it is unchanging and is forever as it was before. Rather, as I grew worthier to see, the more I looked, the more unchanging semblance appeared to change with every change in me. Within the depthless, deep, and clear existence of that abyss of light, three circles shone, three in color, one in circumference, the second from the first, rainbow from rainbow, 
the third an exaltation of pure fire, equally breathed forth by the other two. But oh, how much my words miss my conception, which is itself so far from what I saw, that to call it feeble would be rank deception. O light eternal, fixed in itself alone, by itself alone understood, from which itself loves and glows, self-knowing and self-known. The second aureole which shone forth in me, conceived as a reflection of the first, or which appeared so to my scrutiny, seemed in itself of its own coloration to be painted with man's image. I fixed my eyes on that alone in rapturous contemplation. Like a geometer wholly dedicated to squaring the circle, but who cannot find, think as he may, the principle indicated, so did I study this supernal face. I yearn to know just how our image merges into that circle and how it there finds place. But mine were not the wings for such a flight. Yet as I wished the truth, I wished for came cleaving my mind in a great flash of light. Here my powers rest from their high fantasy, but already I could feel my being turned, instinct and intellect balanced equally, as in a wheel whose motion nothing jars, by the love that moves the sun and the other stars. I'm going to read one more. This is um, Anthony Aislinn's translation. Uh, Anthony uh, almost taught for us at Holy Apostles uh, this particular Dante course. When he was um, transitioning from one school to another, I think uh, the school at Providence let him go. I wrote him and said, hey, would you like to teach a course for us at Holy Apostles? I'd be happy to hand over to you the Dante course. And uh, he and I went back and forth on it, on it from a while, but we could never find a, uh, a time uh, when uh, a semester when that was good for him. Now, my favorite semester to teach Dante is spring, uh, because you can do so much with the liturgical calendar. You can get through all of hell before Ash Wednesday, uh, depending upon the year it is, because uh, Easter is based uh, not on a particular date, but on the uh, lunar cycle. Then you can go through uh, the Purgatorio during Lent, and you can go through, um, you can begin the Paradiso on Easter Sunday and still get through by the end of the year, depending upon how the year falls. Okay, Iselin's, uh translation. So Bernard smiled, motioning to me to turn my view upward, but I had turned it on my own, was doing what he wanted me to do. For as my sight grew pure and whole, alone it plumbed more and more deeply into the ray of truth, the utmost light. Now remember what uh, Peter Damien had said in the seventh uh, sphere. Damien said, you can plumb God all you want, but you'll never get to the bottom of him. And that's the beauty of the uh, finite being, uh, his ability to grow infinitely within an infinite being. So Dante is in the process of plumbing. From this point on, whatever human language can convey must yield to vision, passing the extreme. To such great prowess, memory must give way. As one who sees a vision in a dream. After the dream, the passion so impressed lingers, though nothing else comes back to him. So am I, for the sight is all but lost. And yet, born from that vision to this day, dropless of sweet distill into my breast. So in the sun, the snow dissolves away. So did they lose the Sibyl's prophecy when the wind blew the weightless leaves astray? Summit of light, of light that lift yourself so high above the mind of mortal man, restore some slightest shade of your theophany.
and grant then to my tongue sufficient power to leave the palest flicker of your glory to readers of a later day and hour. For should something return to memory and sound but faintly in my verses here, the clearer will they see your victory. Should I have turned my vision anywhere but to the living ray, I'd have gone blind. So piercing was the power I had to bear. Thus was I bolder, this I call to mind, to bear the mighty radiance that bloomed, till my might and omnipotence were joined. O overbrimming grace, whence I presume to gaze upon the everlasting light, so fully that my vision was consumed. I saw the scattered elements unite, bound all with love into one book of praise in the deep ocean of the infinite. Substance and accident in all their ways, as if breathed into one, and understand my words are a weak glimmer in the haze. The universal being of this band, I think I saw, because when that is said, I feel the bliss within my heart expand. One instant sees more of my memories fade, than two millennia fade the bravery that made the sea god gape at Argo's shade. And so my mind, suspended utterly, held its gaze still immobile and intent, and ever kindled was my wish to see. Before that light, one's will to turn is spent. One is so changed, it is impossible to shift the glance, for one would not consent, because all good, the object of the will, is summed in it, for it alone is best beyond defective, their whole perfect still. Even for these few memories I've confessed, my words are less than what a baby says who wets his tongue still at his mama's breast. Not that I saw more than a single face as I was gazing into the living glow, for it is ever as it ever was, but in my vision winning valor so, that sole appearance as I changed by seeing appeared to change and form itself anew. Within that brilliant and profoundest being of the deep light, three rings appeared to me, three colors and one measure in their gleaming. As rainbow begets rainbow in the sky, so were the first two, and the third a flame that from both rainbows breathed forth equally. Alas, how feeble language is, how lame beside my thought, and for what I was shown to call thought small would be too great a claim. O light that dwell within thyself alone, who alone know thyself, are known, and smile with love upon the knowing and the known. That circle which appeared in my poor style, like a reflected radiance in thee, after my eyes had studied it a while, within and in its own hue seemed to be tinted with the figure of a man. And so I gazed on it absorbedly, and that figure of a man, um, we might uh, consider to be Christ. As a geometer struggles all he can to measure out the circle by the square, but all his cogitation cannot gain the principle he lacks, so did I stare at this strange sight to make the image fit the aureole and see it enter there. But mine were not the feathers for that flight, save that the truth I longed for came to me, smiting my mind like lightning flashing bright. So that's total theophany. Here cease the powers of my high fantasy. Already were all my will and my desires turned as a wheel in equal balance by the love that moves the sun and the other stars. 
just like we get a different insight, and you may have seen different things in each of the three translations, by looking at uh, different translations, the same thing happens every time you read the poem from start to finish. So I've been through it a couple of dozen times, and every time I go through it, I see something new, some metaphor I didn't see before, or some um, turn of phrase, or some turn of mind, makes me rethink what I thought I knew. And it'll be the same uh, with any reader of Dante uh, who studies either different translations or um, the same translation more than once. With that, I return to uh, St. Irenaeus's uh, point. Uh, what he says is the glory of God is living man. That is, God created us in his own image and likeness and for our own sake. He fully reveals, as Gaudium Space, uh, paragraph 22 points out, he fully reveals mankind to himself. And that is why the vision, uh, if uh, the glory of God is living man, living man is living in the vision of God. Um, what, uh, because I had heard it in different ways as well. And so I researched it mm -hmm. one uh, year when I, was, when I was coming up with uh, my Dante lectures. Um, and I came up with Taylor Marshall's explanation. Uh, but he uh, goes through and um, engages this question. And his response to this, I thought, was rather um, impressive. So ever since I read this, I've used uh, Living Man. He writes, one of my favorite quotes is the glory of God is man fully alive. And then he says, okay, but let's look at the Latin. And the Latin is, uh, and he uses a, a different um, translation than the one I've got. He doesn't have enum in there. Uh, Gloria Dei est vivens homo. The glory of God is living man. So if you know what Latin, if you know Latin, you can see what he means. So he says, uh, the cult of self-fulfillment has co-opted the quote to say fully alive. True fulfillment is only in Christ, not in self. So uh, he points out Father Reardon situates the original quote in context. Taylor uh, goes to Father Reardon uh, for the, uh, a way to problematize when you look at uh, Vivens Homo, what living man means in that sense. St. Irenaeus goes on to say, the life of man is the vision of God. So the context reveals that living man or man fully alive is an actuality rooted in the beatific vision. He questions, I wonder if Father Reardon is pushing on this too much. From a Thomistic point of view, there is an analogy between life of glory in heaven and life of grace on earth. For example, I don't think we want to say that the Blessed Virgin Mary was not fully alive while on earth. True, she wasn't in heaven. So in that sense, she wasn't fully alive. Nevertheless, there is an hmm. obvious analogy to heaven and living on earth with the Holy Trinity in your soul. So did the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Paul, and the Little Flower demonstrate the glory of God while living on earth? And he concludes, you betcha, uh, which is rather a Minnesotan way, I think, of uh, stating it. So strict, strictly speaking, Father Reardon is right. People do accuse, uh, abuse the quote. However, I don't think that we have to restrict the passage to human persons being fully alive in heaven. God is truly glorified when we live the life of grace here on earth. Uh, and the glory of God is living man, is what he concludes. Uh, when I translate it, I like to um, think that Taylor Marshall was onto something here, and that Father Reardon's onto something here, 
by looking at the Latin as um, as living man. So, and that's the way Vivens Homo reads. So uh, let me uh, jump on more of these questions that we may have. So uh, I heard one that God is a mystery, not in the sense that he can't be known, uh, but that he can't be exhausted or something to that effect, like being unable to plumb the depths of God. Sure. Uh, his lamenting how feeble his words are and how their lack of justice to what he is seeing is exactly like Aquinas at the end of his life saying that all I have written is straw compared to all I have seen. That's also very true. And it's a good comparison and another parallel between Dante and St. Thomas. Um, when St. Thomas says that, though, uh, he's not putting down straw. He understood straw uh, in its true sense of being something beyond its flowering. And so what he's, when he's saying that all my work is straw, he's not saying that um, my work was no good. He's simply saying, I've grown beyond everything I've done. That work is now beyond its flowering. I've seen something that's so much greater, I just can't write it. It's completely ineffable. So uh, if you put that in context, Aquinas is actually, um, he's, uh, he's actually produced a body of work that is still useful to the people for whom he produced it. Uh, but for him, he's, uh, he can't even describe what he's seen anymore. So uh, there's no sense in going back to it. And Aquinas died at age 49, which means he came up with that epiphany around my age, because I'm 48, uh, which is kind of weird for me to think that I'm almost the same age as Aquinas was when he died. So that's a, a way to put that uh, quote um, in light. And so Dante's the same way. Uh, you know, I, I've... I just can't write anymore. <laughs> I've reached the end of it. I've described all I can describe. I'm going to publish this thing. And then uh, when he finishes it in 1320, he's dead within the year. So uh, now he knows. So at Lucas, I heard similar Bishop Barron describes the mysteries as not unknowable, but infinitely knowable. Right. And so uh, the thing about mysteries is that uh, they're just that. They're mysteries. And um, I remember a story once about a, uh, uh, a bishop who stopped in on the school within his diocese and asked uh, uh, what the students were learning. And uh, the sister uh, says, we're learning about um, the Holy Trinity. And so the uh, bishop turns to one of the students and says, can you tell me, can you describe the Holy Trinity? And the student looks at him, the four or five-year-old, and says, no, bishop, it's a mystery. Uh, there's wisdom from the mouths of babes. Dante uh, provides a description of the Holy Trinity. And we all have a description of the Trinity in our heads somewhere. We've always tried to envision what the Trinity must be like. But Dante describes it as three concentric circles. The one coming out of the other and the other um, spirating through both. What does Dante take away from the experience? That's a good question. What do you think Dante takes away from the experience? What should we as readers take away from Dante's description of God? This goes a lot deeper than I ever could have imagined. Like I had heard of really just the Inferno in the past, but my goodness, I didn't realize. Well, remember why Dante um, got us all the way through the Paradiso. He made a promise on the Vita Nuova that he would uh, write of Beatrice what no man had ever written of a woman. So he starts the uh, Inferno with Virgil uh, showing up uh, to Dante saying, hey, I'm going to take you on this trip. It's ordained by uh, God through Mary, because Mary's the one who saw you here. She's the one who's responding to your prayer, uh, who turned to Lucia, saint of uh, light uh, in blindness, who turned to Beatrice, 
whom Dante loved on earth, who turned to Virgil, whom Dante also loved and gave over himself, his whole soul to its own salvation. So you can see it's like uh, Russian nesting dolls, almost. Mary's there at the beginning. She's there throughout. She's the one who um, saves Dante from the siren when uh, Dante's ascending um, from the ledge of zeal to the ledge of liberality by calling Virgil, human reason, to unmask what the thing is. Uh, is there in all of the depictions demonstrating her perfect human virtues, and she's there at heaven. It shows up a couple of times, uh, particularly in the eighth sphere, uh, where she shows up with Christ and then departs, withdraws back into the, the celestial rose. And she's there uh, at the celestial rose uh, in order to lift Dante up to God with her eyes. So uh, this work is a very Marian work, and it's um, very much in the tradition of the Franciscans, who had a spe uh, special devotion to Mary, as well as the Dominicans. Uh, but Dante was a lay Franciscan. And in this entire context, he elevates Beatrice to the symbol of divine revelation and divine love as his bridge home. And she brings him and drops him off at uh, St. Bernard's feet. St. Bernard has a special devotion to Mary and is able to walk Dante the few steps to Mary, who then lifts him up. So what do you get from this? You get from the, any prayer you ever pray to Mary is going to come true. I mean, I mean, she's going to answer it. And that's the memoriam, um, which we can, uh, we can look at. I found another takeaway I got from, I guess, reading all of this is just like the amount of preparation that goes into Dante being able to experience God. I mean, he has to go through hell, purgatory, and like all of heaven to experience it and how God's like willing to work with us and like answer his questions along the way patiently as possible is a real journey it is a real journey and um uh what did we get out of it is that uh we as docile as we are we're also rather pig-headed uh if you consider uh how man interacts uh with man and god it takes time uh for us to come around and you can see this in everybody's conversion story Christine Mooney Flynn recently did a conversion story for um, uh, WCAT Radio, where she talks about her having um, been filled with New Age her whole life. And then one day she realizes that uh, her life is completely empty. All of these uh, New Age spiritualities that she's been embracing are um, not uh, filling her or fulfilling her or not allowing her to be fully alive or a living woman until she discovers Catholicism and she embraces it wholly. And now she's got a show that she does on a regular basis called the Catholic mama, uh, the memorare. Remember, O oh, most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to your protection, employed your help or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired with this confidence, I fly to you, O oh, Virgin of virgins, my mother, to you do I come before you I stand sinful and sorrowful. O mother of the word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in your mercy hear and answer me. Amen. The, uh, this, uh, the entirety of Dante's uh, comedy is a footnote to this one prayer. How's that for a blanket statement? Okay, what else we got? Can you clarify why St. Bernard would be looking at Mary when God is in sight? 
I know Mary points us to God, but it seems like her job would be done at this point. You would think um, as well. Uh, did you notice who else is staring at Mary? Uh, Anne, her mother. Let me grab it from Chiardi since I happen to have that open. Canto 33. Actually, it's in Canto 32. So we see Anne uh, across the circle from Peter. Behold Anna. She feels such bliss in looking at her daughter. She does not move her eyes to sing Hosanna. And opposite the father of us all sits Lucy, who first urged your lady to you when you were blindly bent toward your own fall. So um, we've got two people gazing intently at Mary when they're within the full sight of God. Who can make sense of it? It's pretty overpowering to look directly at God. Like, I think he used, Dante uses the analogy of looking straight at the sun, just how hard it can be to, to see the sun by looking straight at it. But if you look at like a reflection of the sun, like the creation, for instance, as a ref reflection of the creator, you're probably able to experience God perhaps more fully, little encounter intuitively. There's a clue if you look at um, uh, Canto 31 of the Purgatorio. That's the one where uh, Beatrice. Uh, Dante's looking straight at Beatrice, and he looks into her eyes, and he sees reflected in her eyes the griffin, Christ in his dual nature. Staring at Mary, it's likely that uh, the reflection of God is right there in her eyes, so that by looking at Mary, they're able to see God. Looking at Mary doesn't take away from their vision of God. So that would be, if I were to uh, compare what um, Anne and uh, St. Bernard are doing, that's how it would make sense of it, by reflecting back to the way Dante first sees Christ in the Purgatorio. Now, these are souls that could look at God all they wanted. I mean, that's their job, is to gaze on God. And uh, Dante says, actually, to look away would be blinding. And so the role of Mary, then, as co-redemptrix is uh, pretty uh, uh, defined right in that one statement. Uh, Mary and Jesus Christ, the uh, Son incarnate, are um, both engaged in the work of salvation. But uh, Christ is the one who saves. Mary points everybody to her son. That's her job. And with Dante, she lifts him up with her eyes uh, directly into the mind of God. Remember, uh, St. Bernard prays to Mary in fervent supplication for grace and strength that he may raise his eyes to the all-healing final revelation. And I, who never more desired to see the vision myself than I do, that he may see it, add my own prayer and pray that it may be enough to move you to dispel the trace of every mortal shadow by thy prayers and let him see revealed the sum of grace. And um, Mary complies. Because the goal is Dante needs to get into the mind of God without, without any pride coming into him, that he's being able to do something that no man has ever done. Okay, well, we can move on. But it's something to think about. That's how I make sense of it. I was going to ask one question. Because about like, Dante having the necessity of avoiding pride. The Chiardi translation said something about like the closer he got to the mind of God, the more, was it like worthiness? Is that the word used? As his worthiness grew, his vision became more clear. And then I think in, in the translation you read, it was valor. Uh, so then what's the relationship between valor and worthiness would be that question. 
Yeah, okay, Charity says, rather, as I grew worthier to see, the more I looked, the more unchanging semblance appeared to change the change in me. So yeah, he, he's, as he's growing closer, it's, he's growing closer because he's growing in worthiness. Um, well, remember the old line that God doesn't uh, call the worthy, he makes worthy those whom he calls. So what line is that? And let's see if we can find the same line in, um, in Esalen's uh, translation. It's 112. I see it. You've got a good memory. Um, Esalen says, but in my vision winning valor so, that soul appearance as I changed by seeing appeared to change and form itself in you. So we would translate valor as, um, as what, bravery? How would you translate valor? Yeah, I feel like we usually use it bravery in battle, right? It's, that's, I think, how we would use that term. But again, because we first read the charity one and I had worthier in my, in my mind, then when I heard valor, it seemed like common sense that those would kind of mean the same thing. Uh, I'm looking it up in a thesaurus to see if there are other definitions. Uh, bravery is uh, the first definition. Courage and fearlessness are other definitions for it. Strength of mind or spirit that enables a person to encounter danger with firmness. So it does uh, cast another dimension. What would be interesting is to see what the uh, Italian word is. So um, the Italian word is ma per la vista che sa valoraba. Uh, so that you've got valor in the Italian word. So, um, so that you know, we are engaged in the very process that translators engage in and that poets engage in when they're in the process of translating. This says endorse or value. Uh, it means he fortified himself. So valor, self-fortification, worthiness, which we would um, tend to look with dignity, you know, in comparison with the word dignity. So self-fortification. So uh, uh, basically, he's steeling himself, if you will, to the task at hand, which is to grow in the mind of God. Reading uh, the Italian helps us better understand the mind of the translator. So the, the translators went in different directions for any number of reasons, and Chardy will point it out in his introduction to uh, his translation, where he says, sometimes the literal translation of a word doesn't match the poetic need. Dante actually wrote the work in terza rima. So that's uh, A, B, A, B, uh, where um, the uh, first and third line rhyme, and then the second line rhymes with the first and third line of the next uh, stanza, uh, all the way through. That's impossible to replicate in English. So English translators tend to find rhymes on the first and third alone, and they leave the second um, uh, line in that tercet uh, alone. English, if we look at the rhyming scheme, but in my vision winning valor so, uh, that sole appearance that I, as I changed from seeing appeared to change and form itself anew. So he gives up um, the rhyme on that one. And then the next one, he picks it back up again. Within that brilliant and profoundest being of the deep white, three rings appeared to me, three colors in one measure and they're gleaming. So being and gleaming. Uh, but then the next one, sky with equally. So Aislinn goes for a close approximation to the end word, which doesn't have the uh, phonetic uh, rhyme, but does have a visual rhyme. And in the same instance, our friend Chiardi goes with a different kind of rhyme scheme. 
Rather, as I grew worthier to see, the more I looked, the more unchanging semblance appeared to change with every change in me. He's grabbing words for cadence. Valor has two syllables. Worthier has three. Uh, and for rhythm. It's an aesthetic choice on his part where he's grabbing worthy as self-fortification in a way that uh, Eastland grabbed valor as self-fortification. I mean, if we're going with the literal uh, translation of the Italian. Uh, I'm willing to bet that if we had five different translations, we would have five different uh, uses. Because we don't have line numbers, I would be hard-pressed to find the exact word in uh, Arthur John Butler's translation. His translation is a prose translation, though, so he wouldn't feel com uh, constrained at all by the uh, uh, attention to the rhyme scheme. So uh, why is a rose used to conceptualize the center of heaven? The idea of the uh, center of uh, all creation, which is God, which you can see uh, we're in a very theocentric work, literally, uh, as opposed to what Petrarch does uh, six years later, opening up um, a, a much more humanistic work, where his devotion to Laura is a completely different kind of devotion than Dante's devotion to Beatrice. Think of an amphitheater. In an amphitheater uh, that people would be sitting in, like a Colosseum, for instance, would be uh, equally round, and the center would be where the uh, action would take place. So in a in an amphitheater that the ancients would have gone to, you'd have had like the actors on the stage. And then people would be uh, up in the rows all the way around those actors. And you can kind of see that in our theaters uh, today, except our theaters are like half slices of that. So if you go um, uh, in St. Louis to the Fox Theater, you're there in roughly what would be half of this amphitheater uh, with the other half being the stage you know, and the curtains and the backdrop and all of that. So uh, a Colosseum would be set up the same way. And if you've been to Rome and you've seen the Colosseum in Rome, you've seen it like this. My favorite Colosseum is actually in North Africa. Uh, and I live just a few miles away from it. When I say a few miles, it did take a long time to get there. It was called El Jim. And they had a much better preserved, though smaller amphitheater. And they were still performing live um, performances there. So um, we think of Mary as the rose. The rose is Mary's symbol. And so when we think of the rose, and we consider this a Marian work, look at the relationship between this rose, or the image of this rose, and the image uh, that Dante has uh, drawn with words through uh, Canto 32 of the Paradiso. So this image and this rose are the same thing. And so um, if you were to put uh, God in the center point of the rose and you were to put the souls surrounding God all the way around, you would be able to see that um, something very similar, at least in the, the central petals of the rose, that everybody would be roughly the same distance from the center point uh, as anybody else. And that's why, it's the, uh, that's, that's why it's in the shape of a rose or a mystical rose. You can also see Doré's picture here on the left of the concentric circles uh, as they move closer and closer toward God. Uh, something that Dante sees from a distance and is floored by it. He's got to get there. So the attraction uh, to God once you see God uh, is uh, part of our absolute will. It's our conditional will, as we learned from Picarda uh, down in the moon sphere, that goes haywire.
where we uh, end up choosing a lesser good out of fear or anger or some um, uh, human emotion prevents us from uh, fully embracing uh, the true good who is God from becoming a fully a vivens homo. So in, in homo, of course, counts for man or woman in this sense. Uh, you wouldn't uh, necessarily have to qualify it with a vivens mulierum, muliero or something like that. So uh, why must the souls wait for their bodies to join them? Uh, because the general resurrection hasn't occurred. When the general resurrection occurs, it'll occur all at once. And there's a time sequence to it. So let me go back to this image of the rose again. If you notice coming into uh, this uh, sphere, into the central heaven, into this rose, half of heaven, rest of the Old Testament, this entire right half of the celestial rose is filled. There's no more room. Because the New Testament came along, Christ descended, uh, was born of the Virgin Mary, and became man. When that happened, he um, lived on earth, and then when he was crucified, he went down to hell. During the harrowing of hell, he picked up all the Jews. He brought them back to heaven. Uh, shortly after the, um, that Sunday, or he set them on their path, because remember when he sees Mary, he says, don't come near me, I haven't yet been to my father. So all these souls are somewhere waiting to go to these slots. Eventually, they get to these slots, and then coming into heaven are the first Christians. And the first Christian to come to heaven, does anybody remember his name? Dismas. Dismas. Very good. Today you will be with me in paradise, he says. Uh, whatever today means, because uh, we know that by Sunday, um, uh, Jesus is still saying he hasn't gone to his father. But Dismas finds a spot here. Now, if you've ever uh, been to a, um, a Fox Theater production uh, and gotten there early, you see there's a lot of empty spots. And then by the time the thing starts, if it's like Hamilton or something, all these slots start to get full. So when Dante walks into this amphitheater, he looks at the entire thing and takes it all in, and he realizes that there's only a few spots left on the left side of this uh, screen um, in the rows. And once those spots are full, heaven will be full and the general resurrection will occur. So when that happens, everybody gets their bodies back. And you remember what it's like in hell. All those people in hell have to leave hell, go get their bodies and bring them back to hell. And uh, as uh, Aristotle said, the more something is perfect, the more perfect is its pleasure or its pain. Here in heaven, uh, the composite beings, that is the souls, who are not composite at this particular moment. They're uh, stuck as incorporeal beings, as spirits, as souls, without bodies. They'll get their bodies back too. And then, the composite being reconnected, uh, they will be more perfect than they are now. So they have to wait for the general resurrection. Did I miss any other questions? I know we're just past our time. Uh, well, I wanna thank everybody for uh, for hanging in there for these six weeks. I very much enjoyed my time with you. We didn't know that we were scheduling this during a global pandemic, but at the time we worked out, I think. Let's close with uh, Memorare again. Uh, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Remember, O gracious Virgin, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to your protection, implored your help, or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired with this confidence, I fly to you, O Virgin of Virgins, my mother. To you do I come, before you I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, 
But in your mercy, hear and answer me and us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.